Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, for you and for the forgiveness of your sins. God fills us with his love, and it overflows in an abundant way as the people of God that he has called us to be. From Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska, this is Proclaiming the One with Pastors Clint Poppy and Adam Moline. Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One. It's great to have you with us today. We pray God's blessings on our time together. Each week we take a look, a fresh look at the readings coming up for our Sunday worship service. We pray that God would enlighten us with the text and a special measure of his Holy Spirit. Today we're going to be looking at the readings for the third Sunday after Trinity. If you're not familiar with uh, that name for the upcoming Sunday. The one-year series of readings counts time from Trinity Sunday. And so proclaiming the one is to proclaim the one and only Savior from sin, Jesus Christ. And we do that through the one-year series of readings in Lutheran Service Book. The third Sunday after Trinity, the gospel reading it's one of those rare Sundays in the three-year series where there's an option for the gospel reading. And the traditional gospel reading for the third Sunday after Trinity is the gospel that we're going to be taking a look at, Luke 15, 1 to 10. We have Jesus telling a pair of parables, and the most familiar parable from Luke 15 is not a part of this pericope this uh, set of readings. And so every other year, instead of Luke 15, 1 to 10, we have the rest of the chapter, which is the parable of the prodigal son. Last year's Proclaiming the One took a look at the parable of the prodigal son. So you can check out our archives at thecross957.org if that's what you're looking for. But we're going to look at the standard gospel reading for the third Sunday after Trinity, Luke 15, 1 to 10. Vicar, let's have it. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Okay, seems that uh, God's word has given us a very, very clear theme. We have in verse 10 and in verse 7 almost identical words. Joy in heaven, joy with the angels over one sinner who repents. 
And uh, in that verse 77, there's a, or verse 77, verse 7 of Luke 10, there's a little bit of an additional, um, more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Seems like uh, Jesus is very, very clearly throwing a jab at someone, especially someone who doesn't think they need to repent. So with those two uh, kind of end of the parable uh, punchlines that are there, let's take a look at the context of what's going on here. We've already said that there are three great parables in Luke 15. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and most people are familiar with the longest one in Luke 15, the parable of the lost son, which is more commonly referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. Pastor, we have tax collectors and sinners drawing near to hear Jesus. Why are the tax collectors and sinners drawing near to hear Jesus? What What's going on? What precipitated that uh, that uh, the telling of this parable? Well, um, Jesus is a Lutheran, of course, and so what's going on is he's preaching sermons of law and gospel. He's preaching God's word and its truth and purity. He is, in fact, God's word. And through that preaching of the word, the Holy Spirit is calling, gathering, enlightening, and sanctifying uh, these people into the faith. Um, it is even as John writes in his gospel, Jesus is drawing all people unto himself, and the way he does that is by preaching his word. Okay. In, in fact, just to be drive that point home, if you have a Lutheran study Bible and you look at Luke 15 uh, and the pages around it, you'll see that uh, all those letters are red letters. Uh, that's signifying that these are the words of Jesus. Jesus is preaching, and as a result, people are coming to hear. It uh, it seems almost ironic to me, you know. And we've been we've been in Luke this time of the year. We've been in Luke quite a bit, and when we have this. Um, Parable of the wedding feast, parable of the uh, great banquet, parable or the uh, Jesus teaching on the cost of disciples, and the tax collectors and the sinners are now gathering together like at a meal or at a banquet, and it's like everything Jesus is teaching about is happening. Uh, People are drawn to the Word of God. They're attracted to the Word of God. They want to hear the words that are coming out of Jesus. Is that a, uh, a strange coincidence, Pastor? No, I, that's uh, exactly what happens when the Holy Spirit is at work in the preaching of the Word. Uh, and you know, the small catechism teaches this very clearly with um, uh, both the second commandment, uh, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, and also in the teaching on the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name. God's Word is certainly holy in itself, uh, but it's holy among us, and it does its work when it is preached and taught in its truth and purity, and we hear it uh, uh, gladly and rejoice in it. Uh, that's exactly what's happening. Can you tell us a little bit about, quote, tax collectors and sinners? Um, we see that, that coupling and those individual phrases uh, out there quite a bit in the New Testament scriptures. And I think most people would say that those are derogatory kind of labels that have been put on people. What, uh, what's that all about? 
Yeah, it, it is a derogatory label, especially in this particular context where they're being compared with the Pharisees, uh, who at that time were thought to be the really holy, righteous ones who are um, outwardly Christian, if you will. They're Christian uh, in the way they behave. Uh, tax collectors specifically, uh, we have a lot of historical evidence about them. The way that the Roman Empire uh, operated was through taxes, especially over all the places that they had conquered and taken over. They would take over a place and they would take all the money and stuff away. And then uh, as time went on, they continued to tax those people and that's how they funded all the rest of their uh, giant and huge bureaucracy. The way you did taxes back then as a Roman, uh, you didn't go out there and try and collect the taxes yourself because everybody hated you and because it wouldn't work that well. So what you did is you um, said, we want to get this dollar amount from this particular province. And so you'd, you'd tell the governor and the governor would say, okay, your job is to collect taxes in Bethlehem if you pay me this much. And the, the man would write a check for, let's just say, 15,000 denarii, give it to the governor, and that gave him the right then to go into a city and collect taxes. Uh, and then he would collect more than he had written the check for to the, uh, the governor so that he would actually make a profit in collecting taxes. And so not only are you paying the Romans, who are the uh, enemies and the uh, conquerors and those who are occupying your territory, you're also getting rich because of the authority that they have given you and then also the military might that's behind that. And so people despise tax collectors, believing them to have sold out their nation and their race uh, to make a few dollars and and, and, and to make a profit. Uh, sinners then would encompass all the people that, uh, according to the Ten Commandments, would be outside the covenant because of their actions, and that would be adulterers, that would be prostitutes, things that exist even in our society today, and yet uh, we kind of operate that way as well, right? We treat them like sinners, and we don't want anything to do with you. That's the same sort of thing happening in the ancient world as well. Some things never change. So sinners are either people who are sinning openly or people who've been caught and uh, their sin is known and it's public. Yes, and, and um, in a shame-based society like we used to be, that's a bigger deal uh, back then than maybe it is today where we celebrate it and rejoice in it and then you get a march and a parade and um, you know <laughs> get a special Facebook picture on your, your uh, wall. When uh, when you were talking about the uh, tax collectors, I couldn't help but think about, I mean, it's construction season in uh, much of the country right now, and this is kind of how the construction business works. My company uh, puts in a bid for something that the state of Nebraska or Lancaster County or the city of Lincoln does, and I bid that project, and, and my goal is I'm going to make a profit on it. How much of a profit? Well, I might be tempted to cut corners. I might be tempted to hire undocumented workers. Uh, there are a lot of um, things that if you're an honorable person, you wouldn't do. And if you are a scoundrel, a dishonorable person, you might be willing to do. And unless you get caught, uh, you don't know. And when these things are exposed, when somebody does get caught, uh, people's reputations are ruined and they don't you know all this kind of stuff so in one respect this tax collector sinner thing is very unique to this culture 
And in another respect, there's nothing new under the sun. Sin yeah. is sin. And, and it's the way it's happened throughout all of history. Even uh, the Reformation began because of a situation like this. A man named uh, Jacob Fugger the Rich uh, wrote a check to the Pope on behalf of uh, the elector, um, and uh, the elector then got the bishopric and the permission to then raise that money to pay back the loan uh, by selling indulgences, which led to the 95 Theses and the Lutheran Church today. So, I mean, it's the same sort of thing that happens all the time. You get a bank to write the check for you, and you have to pay the bank back, and that's what's happening here with these tax collectors. Isn't it amazing? There is nothing new under the sun. Well, there... Jesus is being accused by the Pharisees and the scribed, and they say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. That's where we want to start when we come back. We're looking at the readings for the third Sunday after Trinity, Luke 15, 1 to 10. Don't change that dial. You are listening to KNNA. LP 95.7 FM Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Golden. We're privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. And uh, in case you haven't heard, we're open for business every Sunday morning at 8 and 1030. Uh, We're not having Sunday school and adult Bible study right now, but that'll be picking up again very soon. We also worship every Wednesday evening at 630. If you're a little bit nervous or hesitant about coming back to God's house, come and check us out. All the precautions we're taking, keeping everybody safe. Wednesday evening services are always a little bit smaller and a great way to ease your way back into being in God's house. Remember, Satan wants you to stay away from God's house, stay away from God's word. Stay away from the Lord's Supper and uh, don't fall for that lie. We're here and uh, God's gifts are flowing. Thanks be to God. We uh, are looking at the readings for the third Sunday after Trinity. Luke 15, 1 to 10 is the traditional gospel reading for Trinity 3. We uh, set the stage, I believe, pretty well in our first segment. Jesus is telling a, a parable and he's telling a parable with two groups of people present. We have the tax collectors and sinners who are drawing near to hear Jesus. They want to hear his word. They want to hear that strong word. And then we have the Pharisees and the scribes that are grumbling. They're grumbling about the tax collectors and sinners wanting to go to church. And their specific complaint is, this man, meaning Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. Pastor, that seems to be one of the most ironic statements in all of Scripture. Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them. What do you think? 
Well, I think it's the truth. Jesus comes only for sinners, and if you will not be a sinner, then uh, you really have no part or reason for him, and that's, I think, an important thing that we can take from this entire gospel lesson right now. There's so many churches that want to minimize sin uh, and say, you're not a sinner, you're not guilty, you haven't done anything wrong, you are who God has made you, and in so doing, what they're really taking away from is Jesus himself and why he's come, what he's done, and uh, why he's so very important to us, because if you're not a sinner— then Christ hasn't died for you. If he hasn't died for you, then you're left on your own, and you need to get yourself into heaven. Then you never know if you have or not. Uh, and it's kind of a dangerous, um, you know, merry-go-round to be on, uh, being uncertain of whether you're saved or not, because you don't realize the truth that you are a sinner. And that's that's what the Pharisees are in this particular thing. That's what the ELCA is. That's what um, a lot of these other um, righteousness churches are, like uh, Joel Osteen and other uh, false preachers of our day. Is, isn't it amazing that Jesus comes and brings the forgiveness of sins? And there are many in the name of Jesus who neuter that forgiveness by trying to do away with sin and the talk of sin and the topic of sin, thinking that that's the way to grow the church. That's the way the kingdom of God is extended. Uh, do away with anything that, that might hurt someone's feelings. Do away with anything that might, might be offensive. And in so doing, robbing people of the very thing that Jesus came to bring. It is. It's sad. And so... Maybe just need to point this out. If you uh, understand the truth of what God's Word says and you've read the Ten Commandments and you've thought about what they mean and you realize that you are a poor, miserable sinner, uh, come here to Good Shepherd. Uh, join all the rest of us poor, miserable sinners in the forgiveness that Christ has freely given through his life, death, and resurrection provided to us in his Word and in the sacrament. Uh, and uh, then you'll be blessed by that uh, uh, working of the Holy Spirit in you so that you may be certain and sure of your faith uh, um, that you have salvation in Jesus. The uh, the first parable here that Jesus tells, and these are two little bitty parables. Uh, the first parable is, uh, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. We've seen the stained glass windows of Jesus with the sheep around his shoulders, bringing it back. Let's be honest. Uh, I know a lot of farmers and a lot of ranchers. You, you lose one head of livestock, uh, you write it off your taxes. Uh, the uh, one one sheep, one hog, one especially calf, a sheep, right? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, gets lost, uh, and it's not that big a deal. So, what is striking here, right off the bat, is you got ninety nine sheep, sheep farmer. What's the big deal? Why would you leave the 99 and go after that one? And then when you find the one, why would you come back and throw a party? People are going to think you're nuts. Pastor, what is Jesus teaching us here with regard to this lost sheep and a shepherd that would actually go after one measly, slimy, stinky sheep? 
Boy, I don't know what kind of sheep you have that are slimy, but uh, <laughs> um, they fell in the mud puddle and oh, couldn't get up. <laughs> the the uh, thing he's teaching us is about ourselves. Uh, he's teaching us about sinners and tax collectors, which we are number among, uh, and he's really teaching us that the. Uh, um, the thing he does is he goes out to find the lost, the sinners, the tax collectors. He brings them back into the fold of God's love and care and compassion by forgiving their sins, and he brings them into the uh, feast of rejoicing and celebration that we colloquially in, and uh, broadly call heaven. Uh, that's the thing that he's teaching. He's the one who goes out and finds us. He's the one who rescues us. And, um, you know, Lots of times we like to think we're just in the 99, we're already there, we're good to go, um, you know, we're, we're just fine. He is always continually to seeking, seeking us out because we are always continually straying. We're always falling back into sin and unrighteousness. We're always going against God's word. We have hate in our heart and we have anger and we have frustrations and, and all the sin that there is. And God is continually seeking us out, calling us by the gospel, enlightening us with the gifts of the baptism and the Lord's Supper and bringing us back into the church. And all the time then heaven is rejoicing because of what God is doing for us through his word and sacrament. Yeah, you know, I need to I need to call you on something you said there, Pastor. I, I have heard dozens of sermons on these parables from Luke fifteen. I've been to church seminars that were based on the parables in Luke fifteen. You said that Jesus is the one that goes after the lost and I am the one that is lost. That goes against everything that I've heard in these sermons and in these seminars. Because in these sermon and seminars that are very popular in the church now, I am the one that has to go and seek after the lost. Everybody else is lost, but I'm the one that needs to do the doing. These, these texts are seen as mission and evangelism texts. And I'm the one that needs to go out and do the seeking and doing the finding. I'm the one growing the church. Are you trying to tell me that I wasted all my money on those seminars? Um, yes. Uh, those are all false doctrine, and they are all Satan's work at manipulating this text to um, take you away from the true gospel, which is Christ does everything necessary for your salvation. And, and we all know that there are um, shysters who manipulate God's word to do this and to manipulate us. I've seen it at the National LWML Convention, even from a, a more local than that uh, organization that whips people into a frenzy and uses this text to try and get money raised for them so that they can do the things they want to do. I'm not saying that they haven't brought people to Christ or that the gospel hasn't gone out in those organizations, but the fundamental truth is, is that uh, Salvation for everyone is not determined by us or our actions, but rather it is completely determined by what God does through his Son, Jesus Christ, and calling us in the work of the Holy Spirit. And that is how salvation is earned. And so if they're turning it around and saying, you need to go find the lost sheep, they're manipulating you, they're preaching law to you, and the law always increases sin, and, um, and you just need to be aware of that. Just so, verse 7, I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Pastor, I'm a little confused. Who is this righteous person who needs no repentance? Um, well, 
the only one that we can actually talk about would be Jesus. The rest of us all are sinners uh, who do need to repent daily and often. And in fact, even, I mean, to put this in the context, you said last year we talked about the uh, parable of the prodigal son, which more rightly is probably the parable of the son who wasn't prodigal but was a jerk to his prodigal brother and didn't think um, he needed to repent. And if you put them all into context, I think that makes it very clear in that regard. We need to repent because we are sinners. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Uh, It's only when we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is Jesus swiping at the Pharisees and the scribes here that they think they're so righteous that they don't need to repent? I wouldn't say he's swiping. He's plunging the sword directly into the okay. heart of their sin. Okay, yes. he, is, he is preaching harsh, condemning law, not because he hates them or because he's mad at them or wants some political power taken away from them. This is spoken out of love because if they don't think they need to repent, they're heading to hell. Is that fair? That is. That's the 100% truth. And... That's the same reason your pastor preaches the law as well. Now, in the uh, second little parable here, we have the woman who loses a coin, and it's the same thing. She throws a party after, I mean, all she has is a dollar. She loses a dime. Uh, She uh, finds the dime after hunting and searching, and then she throws a party. That's ridiculous, right? Well, and I mean... Think about salvation. It seems ridiculous, too, that the omnipotent, perfect Son of God should die so that uh, a broken creation like us can enter God's kingdom and then let alone celebrate when that happens for us. That's the the uh, craziest thing you've ever heard, and yet that's the fu- foundation of the gospel and of our faith. Um, I, I, do you think that lady who did the sweeping of the floors available, I lost some fishing line, and I can't <laughs> find it. You know, the the amazing thing, the one sheep that's lost, the one coin that's lost, it teaches me that no matter how insignificant I think I am, God values me so much that he would send Jesus to bleed and die for me. This is, this is about human worth, and uh, that's a message that needs to be proclaimed loud and strong. Your worth has nothing to do with your ethnic background, the color of your skin, the size of your bank account. The actions of your life. The actions of your life. All people matter in God's sight. That's why Christ bled and died for all people. All right, we need to take a break. This is Proclaiming the One. When we come back, we're going to take a look at Micah 7. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. P95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Golden. It is um, always a great pleasure to be here to go through God's Word with you. We're uh, going through the readings for the third Sunday after Trinity 
In our first two segments, we looked in detail at the gospel reading, Luke 15, 1 to 10. And uh, in the LSB one-year readings, that's an option. The other uh, option is the rest of Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. We're looking at the traditional readings this year, this go-around. The Old Testament reading for the third Sunday after Trinity is the same no matter what. And that's Micah 7, 18 to 20. Vicar? Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever. Because he delights in steadfast love, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Holy Hootman, is there ever a three-verse text that is so power-packed with so much gospel in all the Old Testament. Pastor, this is just amazing, uh, all the things that are here. Who is a God like you? Rhetorical question. Who is a God like you? Vicar, how would you answer that? Who is a God like Yahweh? Who is a God like the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? It's rhetorical. There must be no one like like our God, Yahweh. And maybe that's why we have the first commandment. You shall have no other gods besides me, because I am special. I am unique. Take a look at this laundry list of things that separates Yahweh, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, from all the other so-called gods in the world. A God who pardons iniquity. A God who passes over transgression. A God who actually cares about the remnant of his inheritance. A God who does not retain anger forever. A God who delights in steadfast love. A God who has compassion. A God who will tread our iniquities underfoot rather than treading us underfoot. A God who casts all of our sins into the depths of the sea. A God who is faithful. A God who has steadfast love. And Not only a God who does this now, but a God who's promised to do this from day one, who's sworn to our fathers forever. Pastor, this looks like about a 17-part sermon series on these three verses from Micah 7. Yeah, um, you just uh, schedule those and we'll let you go for it. (laughs) No, it it is. It's great gospel. It's a great promise. And uh, even, I think, if we take it in those wider contexts, we have uh, a few verses before this. Micah says, shepherd your people with your staff, bringing us back to that gospel lesson where Jesus is the one who goes out and finds the lost sheep. That's what he's doing. And uh, the people, the surrounding nations don't like it. They're ashamed. They they don't understand. It's beyond them. I love this, verse 17, they lick their dust like serpents, they crawl like the things on the earth, and then it goes into the verses that we read where Jesus uh, treads our iniquities underfoot and those who remain in their iniquities with them. Uh, It kind of flies in the face of some of the um, uh, anthems of modern Christianity where God 
hates sin but loves the sinner. He he hates those who remain in their sins, just like uh, um, the sin itself. And, and that's why we need to repent. And when we do repent, we are forgiven. It also brings us back then to Genesis 3, where the promise is given to crush the serpent, Satan, underneath the foot of the one whose hands and feet are pierced on the cross. In our uh, gospel reading from Luke 15, the, the Pharisees and the scribes gum, grumbled against Jesus, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And now here in Micah 7, we see that it's always been this way. God receives sinners and eats with them. Now, it doesn't mean he excuses their sin. It doesn't mean that they agree to disagree on the nature of sin. Sin is real. Sin is, if I can say the word, damnable. And yet God does not overlook our sins. He forgives. He pardons. That's a very part uh, part and parcel of the steadfast love, the nature of God. So I want to take as many of these as we can in this particular segment. Uh, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. Man, there's a lot of stuff in that particular line. Pardon, passing over, remnant, inheritance. Um, When it's this passing over language, I can't help but think about the Exodus and the Passover. Am I am I stretching things too far there, Pastor? I'd have to look up in the Hebrew what the word is here, but that uh, language passing over does bring us back to the Exodus when um, God passed over the people of Israel who marked their doors with blood, and those who didn't mark their doors um, suffered the plague of the firstborn being killed. And I think that is a great picture for us as Christians. We're not marking our own house doors with blood, uh, but rather we've been marked with blood in the waters of holy baptism, and the blood that marks us is the blood of Christ um, as a outward sign that our sins are forgiven, clothing us in the robe of Christ's righteousness, so that when death comes, it passes us over, and we rather get to live forever in God's kingdom. As Jesus says, um, whoever believes in me uh, and dies shall not die. Uh, that's from John. John 11. John 11 there. Yeah, you butchered quoting, it pretty bad. I butchered bad. it pretty hey. bad, trying to think through all the things here, but uh, look it up. It's in the Bible. Yeah, and it's uh, very, very good. Pastor, it says, he does not retain his anger forever. Um, what is it that would cause God to not retain his anger? Uh, It seems like kind of an odd phrasing here, but uh, this is a gospel statement, correct? It it is, and uh, maybe the way to think about it is in terms of when you were in uh, elementary school, if you're my age, you always had a school counselor who said, when you're angry, go home and yell in your pillow or punch your pillow and and still then treat your people around you kindly. And that's the same sort of thing I guess you could say that God does, only instead of punching a pillow and yelling into it, he kills Jesus on the cross, and that takes his anger away. All the anger he had at us is poured out upon Jesus on the cross so that he is completely and totally the 
object of God's wrath, and then we are set free to be forgiven and not receive that anger. There's a lot of anger going on in our world right now, and I would submit that most of that anger is very, very misplaced. There's a, there's a lot of anger at uh, political authorities. There's a lot of anger at law enforcement or law and order in general. There's a lot of anger that is floating around. Um, and most of the time, Christians would say this, this anger is bad. This anger is wrong. How, how can we come to grips with the fact that God is angry or that God gets angry? What is this all about, Pastor? Well, God's anger comes about, about because of sin. And I suppose you could think of it the same way a parent gets angry when they speak their word to their child and their child ignores that word and does whatever the child wishes instead, only put it on steroids. We're dealing with God who created us and gave us life and all that we uh, have and are and said, uh, listen to my word. And Adam and Eve and all of us ever since have not listened to that word, have gone against it. Um, it's that anger. And that anger then um, says, you want to be separated from God? That's what you'll get. That's hell. Uh, separation from God, the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, that's the anger that God has. And all of that is poured then upon Jesus. And we're set free and forgiven because we don't have to deal with the anger anymore. Uh, that's the great thing about it. So there is such a thing as righteous anger. When we see injustices in the world, we become righteously angry, whether those injustices happen to us or happen to someone else, that uh, the fact that there is righteous anger should not surprise us. There's a lot of things going on in our world, and uh, we, can, we can relate to that. What do you do with that righteous anger? That's really the question and uh, uh, the right uh, way for us to look at this. God, in his righteous anger, could have stricken all of us down and sent us all to hell. But his steadfast love caused him to pour out his righteous anger, not on sinners like you and me, but on his own dear son. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. And this is what motivates us when in our righteous anger we want to do and plot all kinds of things to trust the word of God. Vengeance is mine. Thus saith the Lord. We trust that God will do what needs to be done as he did with our own salvation. Am I looking at this uh, the right way, Pastor? Yeah, I think um, there is righteous anger. We have to realize, though, that our sinful natures don't like that to exist for very long, and they take over and take our righteous anger and turn it to sinful anger. And that's when things like uh, looting and uh, violence and uh, rioting and things like that, and even, um, let's just be honest, the hate that that surrounds all of our political process and everything that has to touch it just even a little bit, that is all from our sinful nature, and it uh, overwhelms the righteous anger that we may have uh, very quickly because of our sin. And so it's important for us not to dwell in the anger and leave that to God because we don't know how to handle it correctly. I am righteously angry for generally about a nanosecond, and then my righteous anger is gone, and I'm just downright sinning. And I would exactly. assume that's most people. Yes. That's most people. Um, with regard to this uh, 
promise that we have at the end. You will show faithfulness to Jacob, steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This is nothing new here, Pastor. This, this love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. How does that comfort us that the promise today is the same as the promise that Jacob and Abraham and all of the fathers of the faith had? Well, we have to understand what the promise is that Jacob and Abraham had, and that was the promise of a Savior, that in one of their offspring the entire world would be blessed. It's the same promise given to Adam, uh, that uh, one of your offspring will crush Satan's head, to uh, uh, to Noah, uh, when the uh, covenant is renewed after the flood. It's the same promise given to David, one of your offspring will sit forever on the throne. It's the promise given all the way down to Jesus, and uh, because that promise is the same throughout all of the Old Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, it is also the same for us as well. It's the love of God shown in Jesus Christ. That is our hope and that's our promise. And the way this says it is great because God shows faithfulness to us. Uh, Jacob was a sinner who did lots of really dumb things, and God was faithful to him with forgiveness. Abraham was a sinner who did lots of really dumb things and even tried to take the promise into his own hands, and God still was faithful to him. David and uh, even Pastor Poppy uh, is sometimes foolish in the things that he does, and yet God is still faithful to him. Did I say that okay? Yeah, you did. Thanks be to God. We are unfaithful. He remains faithful. We need to take a short break, proclaiming the one. When we come back, we'll take a look at our epistle reading for the third Sunday after Trinity. Don't change that dial. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Golden. We're looking at the readings for the third Sunday after Trinity. In our first two segments, we looked at the traditional gospel reading, Luke 15, 1-10. In our third segment, we looked at the magnificent Old Testament reading, Micah 7, 18-20, just dripping with gospel. Uh, Marvelous, marvelous text. Uh, We want to look now at the epistle reading, and um, this is is one of those Sundays where there's an option for the epistle as well, and the epistle reading that is intentionally paired with Luke 15, 1 to 10, is the epistle that is before us today. 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 17. 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 17. Vicar? I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus." The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. 
But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 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 Great words, familiar words uh, for a lot of reasons in this particular text. We have um, oh, a little more modern hymn, uh, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. Um, it's one of those hymns that kind of reminds me of a praise song. It just kind of repeats the mantra over and over again, but it doesn't really say anything about who God is or why he is so wonderful. Uh, you know, there's a place for those kind of songs, but it's not really a uh, classic Christian hymn. And speaking of uh, classic Christian hymns, I'll just give a plug for one of our other programs here on KNNA, where uh, Pastor Moline and I are beginning a uh, series that will talk about Christian hymnody and specifically Lutheran hymns in LSB, Lutheran hymns that every Lutheran should know, what makes a good Lutheran hymn, what makes a timeless classic. So uh, check out the uh, uh, archives or check out the At Home in Your Hymnal program. And uh, over the next uh, several months, we'll be looking at lots and lots of wonderful Christian, Lutheran Christian hymns and why they are so very, very good. Uh, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise uh, did not make the top 60, did it, Pastor? It did not. Okay, didn't think so. Probably didn't make the top uh, 160, but that's a, that's a topic for another day. Uh, here early in uh, 1 Timothy, Paul, who is writing to young Pastor Timothy, is uh, kind of giving some biographical things. Uh, I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. He judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. And then in verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. If I want to read about this, Pastor, in, um, in the book of Acts, the, uh, the uh, story of Saul, who becomes Paul, uh, th that would be my primary source document where I would go, wouldn't it be, the book of Acts? That would be the primary place. Uh, it's in there three times, in fact, where Paul kind of lays things out. It's in chapter 9, uh, and then uh, later on, twice more, he's explaining it to um, political leaders and figures of that day and time. And essentially, the story is Paul is a persecutor of Christians. Some Christians have been... Um, Killed at least, uh, he's aided in that process through the uh, uh, the governmental institutions of the day and age, and he's off to arrest more and to put them in jail, and who knows what will happen to him after that. When God appears to him in the person of Jesus in a blinding light, uh, he's blinded, and Christ preaches a sermon to him, and he's converted to Christianity. But I think this is important. Then, even after his conversion, what's Paul saying about himself? He says, I am the chief of all sinners, or the worst of all sinners. I was uh, uh, judged faithful, although I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolent opponent of Christianity. That doesn't sound like some 
churches of our modern day and age, right? The ELCA wouldn't say that, would they? Uh, he admits he's, his sinfulness, and he preaches about his sinfulness and tells people he was sinner and that, yes, you're a sinner too, and by the way, here's how you're saved. You know, there are, there are a lot of churches that uh, build their church, build their ministry, a lot of pastors that build their, uh, their empire uh, on their personal testimony. You know, um, I used to be like this. I used to be a drug addict. I used to be uh, addicted to pornography, you know, but, but then I found Jesus and then my life changed as if they stopped sinning. And that is, I mean, Paul is all about testimony. You just said we have it three times in the book of Acts. There's nothing wrong with a Christian giving his testimony, but look at what he does. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Where does where does Paul's testimony begin? I, a poor miserable sinner, confess <laughs> unto you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended yes. you and justly deserved your punishment. It begins with this dual nature of I'm a poor miserable sinner. Uh what did he say here? What were the words that he used? Uh, blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent. And then his his testimony about his wonderful salvation does not begin with him. Look what I found. Look what I decided. Look how I achieved this. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That seems amazingly like the same complaint that the Pharisees and the scribes were giving against Jesus. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Seems like the exact same thing that's been going on uh, from Genesis 3.15 that we heard about in Micah 7. All of this message is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and this is where we get that wonderful Christian hymn, Chief of Sinners Though I Be. The King James Version does not say uh, of whom I am foremost. It says of whom I am chief. Right. Chief of sinners, and, and Paul doesn't leave that confession of sin behind. You know, you see this in Second uh, Corinthians twelve. He talks about the thorn in the flesh that's always there, and he asks for it to be gone, but it's not. He is still a sinful person all the days of his life, and he's still making that good confession about that reality all the days of his life. Pastor, I want to I want to focus in on uh, verse ten. Uh, well, I'm sorry, verse sixteen. I didn't bring my reading glasses with me. Verse 16 of 1 Timothy 1. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the, the foremost, the chief of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. When the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, I'm the example here, guys. I'm the example, not only because I'm the chief of sinner, but in me, God is displaying perfect patience. I can't help but think of Romans 7. The good that I want to do, I don't do it. The evil that I don't want to do, I keep right on doing. Who can save this miserable wretch that I am? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ my Lord. Am I connecting the right dots here with regard to the perfect patience of God and the struggles that Christians have with sin every day Yeah, I in Romans 7? That's exactly the right connection, and that's the reality, right? If 
Jesus can forgive someone like Paul who's persecuting the church and killing Christians and uh, doing so gladly and happily, why can't he forgive you? If he can forgive uh, the worst sinner that you can think of, why can't he forgive you? He can, and he has, and he does. And that's the key thing. There's no sin that's too big for God to forgive. There's no sin that's too great that it hasn't been taken care of by Christ's work on the cross. And that goes for every single person listening here. That's the truth. You are forgiven in and through Jesus Christ. There are some churches, Pastor, that teach that once Jesus comes into your life, you stop sinning. Yeah. This uh, perfect holiness or perfect sanctification, this uh, perfected life, and this is not taught in the scriptures. The apostle Paul is living and and struggling with sin every day. How is this good news for the Christian who struggles with sin every day, who who wants to do good but can't, who? doesn't want to keep going back to the evil, but does. This struggle is real. How is this word here in 1 Timothy 1 good news? Yeah, um, every person is struggling with sin. Those who tell you they have given it up or they haven't done it in a long time are telling you a lie. Can't help but think of the guy, and I can't think of his name off the top of my head, that was on Larry King that said that. I haven't sinned in 10 years, and then it came out that he was visiting male prostitutes and taking drugs with them, right? <laughs> yeah, it was the pastor from Colorado, I believe. What was it? I don't remember his name. I, it starts with an H. H- Hankenberg, Hanagraf. H- it's not H- Hanagraf. It's, but yeah, you're right. It starts with an H. I'll think of it at 2 o'clock in the morning, and we'll put it on the radio. Anyways, it's a lie. Every person still struggles with sin. Uh, we have those two natures within us, the old sinful nature and the new man in Christ. And they're at war and conflict until finally the last day of earth for us comes and that old sinful nature dies uh, and all that's left is that new creation from Jesus Christ and that's what's ahead of us. And so while you struggle with sin, trust all the more in Jesus Christ who forgives that sin and will bring it to fruition in the last day of your life. Uh, Could we go so far as to say that if you think you don't have any sin to repent of or that you have achieved perfect righteousness, you are one of those 99 righteous persons that Jesus is talking about in our gospel. I think that's 100% what the point is. Aha! Aha! Oh, this has been a really, really uh, uh, fun episode. Hope and pray that uh, you are hungering now for more and more of God's word for the third Sunday after Trinity. Oh, Pastor Moline says one more thing. It's Ted Haggard. Ted Haggard, thank you. And I did not want to drag Hank Hanegraaff's name through the mud because he's a good guy. Not Lutheran, but he's pretty solid. Yes. And uh, exposes a lot of cult stuff. Vicar, would you bring things to a close? Collect of the day, third Sunday after Trinity. Let us pray. O God, the protector of all who trust in you, without whom nothing is strong and nothing is holy, multiply your mercy on us that... With you as our ruler and guide, we may so pass through things temporal that we lose not the things eternal. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Sunday when you get out of bed, read your paper, drink your coffee. Please pray for your pastors, and most of all, go to church. God's richest blessings in Christ. This is Proclaiming the One. We'll see you again next week.